our Bronzeville church service is starting in a little bit, and I'm particularly mindful of them this morning, and I want you to be just uh, to, to offer even another prayer. How many of you know Pam Shepherd? Pam Shepherd. Uh, Pam's preaching in Bronzeville this morning. Yeah, she's preaching this morning, and, uh, and this is her first time preaching, and so um, I've been prayerful for her this morning, and I'm, I'm going to ask you, particularly you that know her, just to, uh, to bow once more uh, and to say a prayer for her as she prepares to preach, and of course, for the congregation as they prepare uh, to worship. Um, it's been a few days since I did this for the first time. But, uh, but I remember every time, uh, because in some ways it always feels like the first time. And so um, let's, let's pray for, for the church and for her. And I'm going to lead us in that. Bow your heads. God, it is our honor to be in your presence. And um, we are thankful to you that we get to gather and to hear your word We get to gather and to sing and to praise you. We get to gather and to call upon you. Thank you, Lord, for our church, New Community. Thank you for uh, New Community Bronzeville and for how you continue to work and to draw people to you. Thank you for every person who comes to this church, who comes to hear you, who comes to encounter you. Thank you for every person, God, who doesn't come uh, to encounter you, who doesn't come to hear you, but who comes nonetheless. God, my heart this morning is aware that there are people here and there are people at Drake Elementary this morning who are waiting, who are listening, who are looking for something, even if they aren't aware that they're looking for you, that they're waiting and listening for you. And so, God, this morning, the prayer that we have is that you who are able to take any word and make it our word would do that this morning. God, you who are the word, you who are the living word, would you come this morning in Logan Square on Logan Boulevard? Would you come this morning on King Drive and show us yourself? Our faith is that you're already present. Our faith is that you're already active. Our belief is that you are at work. You have been at work. But God, this morning our prayer is that we would hear you, that we would sense you, that we would encounter you, be it here or be it Drake. God, I pray this morning for the proclamation of your word. That we would proclaim truth this morning, whatever our topic, whatever our text. That, God, you would use us to preach. That you would use us, God. That you would use Pam this morning. I pray for her. We pray for her. That, God, you would use these last moments of preparation to deal with her heart. To settle in her heart those things that are unsettled. I pray the same for me this morning. I pray for every listener this morning, God, that they, that we would hear you. God, I pray for the encouragement, for the strength, for the courage even to stay when we want to check out, to pay attention when we want to be distracted. I pray against distractions this morning. When they come, I pray that you would gently nudge us to continue to hear you, even in those distractions, to continue to hear you. So God, make us a people, make us a church that knows how to hear you, that knows how to listen for you in the songs, in the prayers, in the pastoral emphasis and announcements, in the preaching. God, make us a people who hear you well. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Every week, um, we, we in some ways are trying to reach two types of people at two different extremes and, and folks in between. And, it, and it's usually not until I get to sit down sometimes with visitors who have been at our church two or three times and a part of our hospitality ministry is to really try to offer uh, coffee, in my case tea. You sit down and, and meet with a ministry leader or a staff and sometimes it's in those settings where uh, these kinds of questions come up and not necessarily uh, right before a sermon. But, but whenever and if ever I get the, the question about 
our worship, what it is uh, our worship style is when, when new community gathers together. That, that question often comes up, and usually people are, are looking for something that has to do with an anchor around, you know, is, is, is new community, uh, and if you've been here, you know that we're not sort of a traditional liturgical church that's sort of more higher church, you know, with robes and, and, and liturgy that is stated and explicit and sometimes printed in the bulletin, and we follow creeds and affirmations and prayers and so forth is new community on the one end that kind of church or on the other end if I can talk about it as another end is new community the kind of church that that is really formless in terms of worship and so the the worship service you don't really know what to expect it is completely spontaneous and extemporaneous and you just don't know it's not stated it's very implicit if not altogether untalked about and so when we gather together where is new community is new community a kind of church where uh, uh, you know, you see charismatic expressions of worship. Is new community a kind of church where, you know, songs can be sang even after the songs have ended? Is new community the kind of church this, this, and this? And it's in that kind of question and answer where I always talk about at least two things when it comes to our worship. One of the things that I always try to talk about is that new community and our worship services are always trying to reach two types of people. On the one hand, the type of person that we are remembering as we plan our worship, as we think about sermons and what we say and how we transition from one place to another, as we think about our language, we're thinking about the person who is, who is spiritually mature, who has walked with God, who has loved Jesus, who, is, who, is, who has developed a faith that is strong, that is getting stronger. We are thinking about the person who comes here, who knows Jesus Christ personally, who senses the presence of God in her life, who follows God every day, sometimes one step at a time, even when they can't necessarily see where God is going. We are thinking about the person who sits every day in one shape or fashion, in one form or another, and says, God, my life belongs to you. In this decision I make, my life belongs to you. Before I make this telephone call and respond to this email, my life belongs to you. We're thinking about the person who takes one step at a time, trying to be intentional and mindful about God and God's lordship over his or her life. And on the other hand, We are mindful of, we are remembering the person who is so uh, far away from that experience. Maybe not because he or she feels less of God's presence, but because they don't have the time with God, the the energy and the history and the background with God, the backstory with God. And so they are so new, they feel so new that they don't know the language of Scripture. They're not necessarily content and easy with scriptural admonitions or what the psalmist might say. They would not necessarily know what it means to sing praises to God but 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 they are all the way on this other extreme and and they are listening for God in their own way in his or her own way that maybe instead of reading the scripture and listening for the for the word of God every day trying to encounter God this is the person who reads a lot of uh, on cnn.com or the wall street journal or likes to read blogs or likes to kind of interact with people but doesn't really have the familiarity and the closeness and the proximity to God and God mindfulness and being aware of God every day, one step at a time. And if you think about it for 30 seconds, the person who, 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 who is not as aware of God comes to our worship service and has a completely different experience than the person who comes listening for, hungry for, always and trying at least to be mindful of the presence of God. And when we think about worship, when we think about coming together for what we do, we are trying to reach the person who knows less if anything at all about all of this on the one hand and we're trying to reach and allow for an encounter between God and the person there and the person who knows God, who's hungry for God, who recognizes the hunger as a hunger for God. In between those two people are all kinds of folks. And some of you will lean more toward one or toward the other. And and as we gather together, we are trying to lead, pastor us as a congregation through what it means to encounter 
and respond to God. We are trying to say that the church, that the gathered people, and that you individually, that make up the gathered people of God, has a role for which it was created. And last week, I started talking about this, and I said to you that the church is created for worship. That worship is a response to God and that God expects worship. Worship starts us and finishes us with this truth. God is God. I am not. God is worthy of a response. I always give a response. I either worship, I join in praise, or I walk away and say you are not who you say you are. The reason, the why behind why we worship is because there is a God. We all have God and we all respond and say to that God, you are worthy of my life. You are valuable. I esteem you. I exalt you. You are in first place. This morning, I'm going to talk about how we do that. I'm going to talk about how we do that as the church, not necessarily how we do that in our own lives and individually and maybe sometimes incorrectly, but I'm going to try to focus on what the church does when we gather together. Last week, I gave you a definition of worship. I told you that worship was a statement or a label of value. It is, it is naming something or someone as worthy. It is, it is finding value in something or someone. So when we worship God, we are worshiping, giving homage to, or rendering praise to God and saying in many ways and in many words that you, God, are worthy, that you, God, are praiseworthy, that you are worthy of my time, attention, my affection. And so worship is, is, is this giving of God. It is on the one hand a noun. It is what we give. It is the homage we give. It is the praise we give. And it is also a verb. It is that we give. We worship. We praise. We sing. We pray. We thank God. So it is on the one hand something that we give and it is something that we do. And so this morning, what I want us to do over the next few minutes is look at a couple of passages of Scripture and then look uh, uh, to, to, to look at two uh, stories, as it were, of how people in Scripture have worshipped God. That's the first part of the message. And the second part of the message this morning is where we will look kind of at uh, a, a smattering of Scripture and what Scripture says about how we do this, how we do this exercise, this discipline that is called worship. I should tell you that, that, that I'm not preaching these sermons last week and today uh, because we're not worshiping, because as a congregation, or we're not doing this, or because I have some information about your individual life and I'm trying to say what you're not doing, but I'm trying uh, to remind us as the church that this is what we do. Independent of the mission, independent of the work, independent of all the important things like purpose and goals and the things that we set in our lives. We have to remember that as a church, we look at God, we look at Jesus, we look at God working in the world in the Holy Spirit. We look, we pay attention, and we respond to this God independent of everything else. It's important for us to talk about mission. It's important for us to remind you of the gospel and embodying it. It's important for us to talk about grace and how it looks in our normal lives, but it is no less important every now and again for us to step back and to say, regardless of mission, regardless of all the things that we do as the people of God, regardless of all that we're involved in, God is so valuable that we say thank you, that we speak praises, that we gather together as God's people to anchor ourselves in who alone is God. So this morning, I'm going to take you to a passage in 
Second uh, Samuel. And before we go there, I want to tell you a little bit about this uh, scripture uh, in Second Samuel 6. It'll come up on the screen in a little bit. If you have your Bible, flip. I love sometimes hearing. Does anybody bring their Bible to church at New Community? You know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. If somebody is not raising their hand next to you, nudge them. Say, shame on you. Everybody laugh because nobody's going to do that at New Community. No, no, nobody's going to do that. Um, and, and I'm joking, sort of. Um, <laughs> Uh, so if you have a, a Bible in your hand, uh, even those of you who have it on your phone, if you're not texting your friends about something else, uh-huh, uh, look, in your, look in your phone. But in a minute, you can, you can, so if, it might take you a few minutes to find Second Samuel. You bought the Bible with the table of contents, by the way, so that if you don't know, we won't know it. Just look at the table. Um, before we get to the text, let me tell you that it's a passage about uh, the ark, the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. And if you don't know much about the Ark, this is an object that is so revered in Israel's life in the Old Testament. The, the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark, has been uh, stolen by the time we come to Second Samuel, where we'll park in chapter 6. It was taken about 100 years before where we find ourselves in the Scripture. It was taken by the Philistines during a battle, during a raid. And, and, and this, this, this theft had particular significance for the people of God because it was the most holy object that Israel had. The ark was symbolic of, evocative of the presence, power, and glory of God. So that the presence of the ark of the covenant symbolized, made you remember that God was among his people. And that's how Israel talked about the ark. So that when the ark has been taken, there's so much that is taken with it. Israel's history is in the ark. The ark was uh, with them in the wilderness. The ark was going before them during battles when they warred with the Jebusites and the Philistines and all, all the other various people that were in battle with Israel. So they carried it in battle. They carried it in the wilderness. The ark was where they housed um, the tablets of the commandments that Moses had given them, the table of showbread or the bread of the presence was in the ark. And so they had both the reminder of God's law, God's instruction here. They had a reminder of the presence of God among them, God dwelling between the cherubims, the language you'll see in the text. And they had a reminder of God's provision. The bread was, was, was to tell you, to tell the people of God that God provides all of your needs, that God sustains you daily, that God did this in the wilderness, does this today. And so when the Philistines stole the ark, they took away this, this important divine object of Israel's history. Israel was going through a lot of transition at the time, governmental leadership changes. Saul was the first king in Israel. Uh, he was killed, and you can imagine some amount of civil unrest after his death. And so David becomes the second king in Israel, and he makes what is a politically wise decision. He decides that he wants to recover the ark, that he wants to get the ark back. It's a political decision, but you can't necessarily divorce it from the religious meaning that it had for David too. The ark held Israel's history and if there was any object that would bring the people stability in the midst of transition, it was the ark that said God is strong, mighty, and present. And so in the Old Testament, this ark was a very powerful and significant object. No other object could provide like the ark the presence of what Scripture calls the Holy One. So let's look at Second Samuel uh, chapter 6. Uh, I, uh, I'll read this uh, because it's a long passage. I want you to save your voices for all those amens you will have this morning for the preacher. Uh, if you're laughing, it's because you know y'all hardly ever say that. Um, that's another gentle nudge to say you have permission to tell me to preach, okay? Uh, and I also have a second shorter passage that I'll have you uh, to read too. So at some point, I'm going to hear your voices uh, in the sermon. So Second Samuel chapter 6, I'll read the entire chapter. Uh, it's up there on the screen. And I want you to listen for how David and how 
the people are worshiping God. Okay? Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel. This is the New Living Translation of Scripture. 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart as it left the house, carrying the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments. Lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nakan, the ox stumbled. And Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. I suppose if you have to go, what better place is there to die? David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is called today. Verse 9, David was now afraid of the Lord. And he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. That's language for Jerusalem. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything because he has the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom, uh, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with great celebration. Isn't it interesting that the historian doesn't give us any detail, right? David is afraid. He doesn't know how he's going to do it. And we don't know how he does it, right? We just know we get the summary that he does it. Verse 13. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Now we're pulling into the story. Because the writer doesn't tell us. He gives us the summary. And now he says, okay, I surprise you. I'm going to give you a little more detail. David sacrifices a bull. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael the daughter of Saul, this is David's wife, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in his place inside the special tent David had prepared for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Verse 18, when he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, How distinguished the king of Israel looked today shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael. If you've ever had an argument with someone who you love, this is, this is the time you remember that and you listen for that language. I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father. Oh, they're bringing out all of the big guns. <laughs> You know, you ever heard of fighting fair? There's no such thing of fighting fair when you're mad. You fight fair later. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> when your father got fired, I got chosen, David is saying. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. 
Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. There are a lot of fascinating things about this passage, um, uh, and one of, one of the most fascinating, and I think um, you see a lot of this in the Old Testament, is when God kills Uzzah for trying to stabilize the ark. And uh, I'm not going to unpack all of this chapter, uh, but I am going to say about that part of it, that the ark, and you can look at Exodus 37 to learn a little bit more about the ark and about this background, but the ark was not to be touched by just anybody. And God had pretty much insisted on this. Uh, And it's interesting because when God says something in the Old Testament and it doesn't happen, you see the consequences. And this is one of the consequences. God had said only people who are ritually prepared can handle the Ark of the Covenant. And that's behind some of David's uh, questions of how am I going to do this? How am I going to move this ark? So it wasn't necessarily that, that Uzzah had done something, uh, that done something with bad intentions. He, he, was, he was serving in ministry. He was in the parade with the king. He was working with his, with his brother uh, who, you know, who was in front of this parade and this procession. And he saw the ark stumbling, this revered and, and respected object. And, and we can take away all of the bad blame for this fella. You know, we can feel a little sorry for him to some extent because his intentions were probably good, but he was not ritually prepared to do what his good intentions reacted in him to do. And so he dies. And David, like any sort of humane individual, gets angry, maybe a little depressed, a little despondent, because here he is as the king trying to do something good, probably like this now dead man who died next to the, to the altar. He's trying to do something good, and he's a little confused, and he despairs for a little while, takes a few months to stew. Uh, some kind of way he brightens up out of this, and you see this in David's life uh, in, in, in other instances. But David, David finds a way to gather people together to go to Obed-Edom's house and to bring the ark back. And what I want us to sort of zero in on is what uh, David does to bring this ark back. After he gets over his anger and his disillusionment and his sort of questions about this, he still has this decision in front of him and, 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 and this strategy to try to bring this ark back. And so verse uh, 12 of chapter 6, where we've read, if you have those Bibles still open, look, if not, look up here. um, And I want you to, to look up and to tell me what you see David doing, how you see him bringing this ark back. How do you see him worshiping God as he brings this ark back. So I'll read through this one more time. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Wearing a priestly garment. This is a linen ephod. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. What did you hear? What do you notice David doing as he brings this ark back? This, this, this is not a rhetorical question. This is where you talk back to me. So one at a time, uh, Say aloud, what do you see? What do you hear in this passage? Preparation, okay. Made a place for it. Sacrifice. A worship service. Joy. Uh-huh. The front row, I love, I love the first two rows. Uh, all the other heretics are in the back. Uh, 
Uh, can, can, I get, can I get some people further in the back? I'm just kidding. This is how Pastor Michael jokes. Just so you, if you're a visitor, uh, I do these jabs every now and again. You're supposed to laugh. Uh, other folks, what do you hear? What do you hear? And I also know some of your names, so I'll call you out. What? Come on, use your preaching voice. Relief? Okay, relief. Thank you, Darius. He's present? Yes. There's more. That's why I'm waiting for you. What do you see? He's jealous of Obed-Edom. Okay. All right. Jealous. David is. Okay. David, jealous of Obed-Edom. All right. How else do you see this? How do you see him worshiping? How do you see him bring this ark back? Come on. I'm, I'm waiting for somebody in this middle section, and I'm believing I might have to call some names. I'm just, uh, uh, I see you. I see you. I, you know, are you laughing? Because I see you, and I might call you. I'm just telling you. So look at the Bible while you're looking down at your shoes and you're laughing. Okay? All right? Come on. I'm still waiting for you. I'm still, I'm, come on. I'm still waiting for you. What do you see? Dan. Dan. Ah! I might take you out to lunch. Good job. What else? Somebody in the balcony. What do you see? Okay, nobody in the balcony. Somebody on the main floor. What else do you see? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Yes. Anything else? Oh, it's all coming now. Uninhibited. Shouting. Thank you, Matt. Anybody else? Huh? Lots of instruments. Anybody see anything else? Wait a minute. This, this man stands. This brother stands. Yes, say that again so we can hear you. I can't say everything you said, but bringing the ark back, because he gave us a great summary of what this passage taught, bringing the ark back to make it the center of their lives. Look at, look, listen, listen, and, and hear this echo in this text, because there are two types of people in the text. One is the person who leads in worship, and one is a person who leads in contempt. And I think the Deuteronomist, the person who writes this history in the Old Testament, I think, and, 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 and I'm not, I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to, you know, Bible is here, so it's David and Michael, and Michael happens to be the king's wife, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw too many jabs in that way, but what I want you to hear is that whenever there is a celebration, whenever there is worship, you always have one of two responses. You either join in the worship, or you join in the contempt for worship. That Michael reminds us through the scriptures that there is no such thing as indifference when it, get, when it comes to the gathering of people who are here to worship. That there is no such thing as being neutral. There is no such thing as you straddling the fence. Either you throw yourself in and you do what we call leaving it all on the floor in worship or you by your posture by your attitude by your gestures by your language join in the contempt for the God who is to be worshipped there is no I you know I can David is praising in this intense way and Michael is objecting in this intense way. And rather than soften up what we hear scripture saying, I want you to put yourself and to put what we do as the people of God, what we seek to do as the people of God, if you have to, push it in one category or another. Because I think that is what God is looking and listening for. Either, either you recognize my worth in whatever physical, intense, personal, demonstrative ways you will or you recognize somebody else as God. There is no, I can't say that word, there is no straddling. I'll repeat that. God is either worthy of your worship or God is worthy of your contempt. 
God is either worthy of you, regardless of social expectation and custom, dancing, shouting, leading in the leaping, leading in the praise, grabbing an instrument, a tambourine, a drum, or God is worthy of you sitting in the windowsill, judging everybody who worships. David, David is giving us an example of how scripture talks about worship. And I don't, I do and I don't, because I'm going to get to this in a little bit. I don't want you to get caught up in the weeds. I said I do and I don't, okay? So now I'll say I don't. I don't want you to get caught up in the weeds of exactly what David is doing, because what David is doing is not the focus of this text. David's leaping and shouting and leading the worship is not the focus of this text. The focus of this text isn't even that object called the ark. The focus of this text is God. And what David is doing is responding in his best way to the God who is to be concentrated on and focused on in the text. And for David, it is all these things that you're talking about and that you're naming. Let's look at another text. And here I'm going to ask you to warm up your voices and to read. It's in Luke chapter 17. And this text has uh, a sing 10 men who uh, have a skin disease called leprosy being healed by Jesus. So Luke chapter 17, a much shorter passage, verses 11 uh, through 19. So uh, if you read fast, slow down. And if you read slow, speed up. And I want you to read this together. Uh, Luke 17 verses 11 through 19. Go ahead. This passage doesn't show us the first time that a person is healed of leprosy in Scripture. Um, there is another instance in the Gospels where Jesus heals a person, but this is the first time where a group of people are healed of leprosy. Um, and there's a lot of material in Leviticus in, in those Old Testament books most of us don't read anymore about this skin disease. And uh, one of the things that's helpful to note about this is if you had leprosy, you just couldn't come around people. You were sort of banished. You were marginalized. And so Jesus here is healing um, as he does throughout the Gospels. He is embodying the power of the Gospel in the form of healing, in the form of this miraculous work. And, and Jesus does that. Jesus heals. Um, Jesus heals. And, 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 and you sit with that if you need to, because sometimes we read scripture and we run past it and we say, oh, you know, Jesus just does that. Jesus just, he did that. He does that. And then, and then we just sort of forget and disconnect from our real lives that he does that. And in some ways, and maybe I'll get ahead of myself to say this, in some ways, the only reason we come here and do what we do is because Jesus does what he does. You, you have never been in a relationship with a person who you knew loved you, cared for you, and they did not demonstrate through some gesture, through some act, some language, uh, something funny, something affectionate. They didn't demonstrate that love for you. And so Jesus, when it comes to what God does for us, demonstrates love. And one of the ways that God demonstrates love for you, love for me, is by taking our woundedness, our brokenness, our diseased uh, lives and remedying, healing, making us whole. And so somebody needs to hear this morning that God can heal you. That's the first part of this text. Second part of this text is when one of the people who have been healed returns. 
And scholars have talked about this man returning and his return having spiritual significance uh, and, and emotional significance. He is returning in to, 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 to talk of God, to praise Jesus as the lover of people, the beneficent one, the one who is God, who is able to do the impossible. So when he comes to thank Jesus, he's looking at his experience, he's looking at yesterday, and he's looking at today, and he's saying, look at what Jesus did for me. And can I tell you, church, and At some point in your week, you, and I'm talking to the church here and um, everybody else can kind of eavesdrop, at some point in your week, you need to have a moment where you ask yourself, pause yourself to say, what has Jesus done for me from yesterday to today? What has my experience of God been? You will never, you will never encounter God when we gather together if you don't encounter God when we scatter. And somewhere in your week, you have to tune yourself, train yourself, equip yourself, push yourself to say, God is at work. God is changing me. God has changed me. Have I seen it? Because when we come back, we gather and we worship God based upon what God has done. We express value like this man who has been healed by a compassionate Jesus. Worship is always a response to a God who loves us. One of the first passages of scripture I learned in vacation Bible school, Mother Flowers taught it to me, uh, it was John 3.16. And some of you, this is probably your first passage too. It's like the, the, the one I knew in the Bible before the second one in Psalm uh, 119 and 11. Those really are the only two scriptures I've memorized, actually. I don't know if that's depressing. Um, but uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so when scripture talks about the love of God, it talks about God who gives to us. And Jesus encountering this man, loves this man, has compassion over this man, heals this man, gives him healing. And he returns to say thank you. And I want to suggest to you, I've got, I've got, I've got five minutes that's going to turn into eight, let's just say. Uh, he comes back to thank Jesus. Very simple. He comes back to acknowledge what God has done. So how do we worship? How do we come together and do this? We come together and in one sentence or another say thank you. The last, you know, we're trained to say thank you. We're trained by our parents uh, to say please and thank you. We're sort of used to that. But saying thank you, Jesus, just sounds a little bit too churchy. But this man, I think, pushes us beyond that fear and says, no, there are really good reasons for you to say thank you, Lord. You have done this. When we gather together, when we gather together, what makes our church, the church, the local church, a beautiful assembly is our gathering together is is the embodiment of uh, that opportunity where we come together. There are a handful of us in here and we say, God did this in my life. God did this in my life. Look at what God did in my life. And every time we hear a testimony, every time you see that person whose life you know is jacked up, whose life you know is, is full of pain and suffering and they're lifting their hands, you get a, a visual picture of what God has done to lift those hands that have been bowed down all week long. And when you see that person lifting their hands or clapping or praying, how can you not say thank you, Jesus? When I, when I was growing up in the church, we, we would kind of capture this passage in a song that says, he's done so much for me, I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. He's done so much for me. I cannot tell it all. And like a lot of songs in the African-American tradition, it grabs one idea and one line and drills it into you, sings it again and again to communicate a truth that you lived 
And that is that God has done so much for you that if you tried, you could not tell it all. And when we gather together, when we hear each other's testimonies in small group, when we come together to worship and are led by Sandra or Jillian or Andy, uh, we, we, we are gathered together and we beat them leading into worship because we come, in other words, saying, he's done so much for me, I cannot tell it all. I want to sing it. Andy, you got to catch it by ear, okay? We're going to sing it. We're going to sing it. I put it on the slide so I prepared for it. Tim, I see you running because I need you to tap, tap, okay? It's, and this isn't the end of the message, so y'all got to get with it because I got about five or eight more minutes. I can't remember what I told you. So, so, so that is here. Obviously, I planned for this. This is not extemporaneous, so you got to get with this. The language is right here. It's really simple. Andy's, I don't know if he knows it. I'm going to try to sing it so he can hear it and you can hear it. And then we're going to sing it. I'm going to ask you to stand, not yet. Move your hands, get them ready. Don't, don't leave. Don't leave. All right, y'all can leave. All right. Come back, though. Um, say this. He's done so much for me. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. He's done so much for me. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. Stop. Stop, stop, stop. Did you hear how simple that was? That was so simple. Now, I start as I do. I started a little too high because, you know, when you're talking, you got to, I don't hear, I can't hear when I talk and then I got to start it somewhere. But you heard it. It's simple, right? You already started singing. So you already had your first rehearsal. Get up on your feet. Let's sing. All right. Let's sing. Let's sing. If you don't stand up, uh, sit down. Otherwise, stand up. And if you can clap, clap, clap. Just like that. Good. Good. Now, now, for some of you, wait, 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 because I don't know if you can hear me. For some of you, you're advanced in this kind of thing. So when you clap, you add a foot and you stomp. You do the same thing Tim is doing on the bottom drum, okay? You, you put your foot like that and then you clap. Now, if you can't keep time, don't try to stomp. Just clap, all right? All right, come on, clap, come on. Here we go. Sing. He's done so much for me. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. He's done so much for me. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. Say it again. He's done so much for me. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. He's done so much for me. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. Now say this. He washed away. He washed away my sins. I cannot tell. I cannot tell. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell. He washed away my sin. Oh, I cannot tell it all. I cannot. One more time. He washed away my sin. He washed away my sin. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. He washed away my sin. I cannot tell it all. I cannot tell it all. Now sit down because I got to finish preaching. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. But that song, that song, you can go, he washed away, he took my sins away. You can say, he walks and talks with me. You can kind of grab another line, pull it in, because the song is trying to remind us that God has been at work and that God has done more than we can acknowledge. And this man in this text, whose sins have been washed away, whose skin has been healed by God, in some way is saying what we just sang, that Jesus has done so much for me that I cannot tell it all. I got five more minutes, uh, eight, depending on how you count. I, I can't remember what I told you or when I told you. Last thing. This is the last thing. This last thing. Uh, I'm going to show a slide, well, Valerie's going to show, show a slide in a minute that, that grabs a lot of what Scripture says about how we worship. 
And, and I'm going to warn you now because the words of Scripture aim to change you. The words of Scripture aim to change you. So on the one hand, we come together and we worship and we all have different stories. We all have different backgrounds, many of us different languages, different experiences with God, with responding to God. And so it's really difficult being a church like ours and responding to God in any sort of uniformed way because we're so different. And in many ways, everybody is different in any church, but in a church like ours, you can just look around and tell, yeah, we're really different. We got a lot of different kind of people coming. And so when we worship, on the one hand, we, we, we want to hold to our experiences, to the things that we know, to the expressions that are comfortable to us. And on the other hand, we want to try to be a biblically faithful people and to respond to God in ways that scripture says we respond to God. Does that make sense? And so in your background, you may have a lot of what you'll see on this slide or in your background, you may have hardly any of what you see on this slide. And the question for you is what does it mean for you as a person who comes to the people of God to worship on Sundays? What does it mean for you to bring your life and your way of worshiping God under the word of God? Look at this. Look at this slide. Or maybe it's one or two slides. I'm not sure. Yeah, several. Uh, and these are some of the ways that Scripture uh, talks about worship. So sort of thumb through, and you can kind of just ro- scroll through them over the next few minutes. And I'll say this, um, and, and then I'll need about five more minutes, and I'll be done. Um, it's... it's um, it's, it's, it's difficult for me sometimes to worship here at our church. And I think it's the same for a lot of us. Um, and and, I'll, and, and I, I, I don't pretend to speak for uh, African Americans except when I pretend to speak for them. Um, and I usually don't because, you know, if you're a person of color, you hate when everybody, you come to the class, you're the only one. Uh, Sandra and I were talking about this and, uh, this morning, and you know everybody automatically thinks you speak for everybody who looks like you, and uh, so I, I make it a rule not to do that um, because it's uh, it's marginal enough. But 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 I was thinking about this and preparing for this sermon, and I and I do want you to see uh, what Scripture is saying. And if you're the note writer, I'll write some of that down for your own development. And um, and I want to say this because sometimes. Uh, it's helpful for us to remind each other that what we do is difficult. And for some of you, it is difficult to do any of what you're seeing. So, so you coming to worship in a biblical way is already a stretch. And when I think about the stretch for me, the stretch for me is often looking, and again, like you, looking at my background, what I'm used to, what I'm comfortable with, what I feel when I uh, am in the church of my upbringing, and I come to our worship service, and I say, it's not the same. I'm used to worshiping God in a particular way, and that way is not the way I'm doing it right now. I'm used to hearing a certain sound, and the sound that I hear is not the sound that I hear right now. I'm used to expressing myself in a way that I'm not expressing myself right now. Now, here's the thing. New Community Covenant Church never said and never will be the church of my background. Yours either. And here's the thing, that's perfect. And the question for us, though, is how we will bring our backgrounds, our stories, our preferences to the scriptures in the congregation and how we will express ourselves in worship. So for some of you, it means, you know, they didn't clap where you came from. So, I mean, clapping is a stretch for you. And for some of us, it's, I still miss that Hammond B3, and I just never hear it. And you're, you're kind of, I, I clapping, I, and I'm kind of saying, you know, put the, some, the pocket, some, you, know, I, I'm, that, you know, I'm just, I, and, 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 and we're all over the board. And at some point, we've got to get over the stumbling and say that there is a beauty in who we are 
And even more importantly, there is a beauty in the God we worship. So if it's standing, if it's kneeling, if it's bowing, if it's lifting your hands, if it's sitting in silence, if it's rocking yourself, if it's sitting, if it's doing nothing at all, or if it's doing everything that your body naturally says you should do when you worship. You should dance. You should wave your hand. You should clap. We all come to this God in different ways. And we come and what unifies us is not the way we worship, not the how we go about it. What unifies, although we do reach for the biblical expressions of worship because we want to be a biblical people, that is not the focus. The focus is on this God who loves us so much, who demands by his own person and nature that we do something to say thank you. That we do something to express I need you. That we do something to express I don't know how I even thought I could live this life without you. You are worthy. You are first. You are valuable. So, bow your heads. I want you just to take a moment first of silence and then maybe keys and we'll transition into our response song to hear specifically what this means for you if you haven't already. Just a moment of silence. You alone are worthy. You alone are holy. You alone, God, are righteous. You alone are God. Just first that chorus, everybody, and then and then Sandra, lead us. And let this anchor you today and throughout this week because, because when you face the trials in your life, uh, you need this language. You need this language to say, you alone are God. What's in front of me isn't. What is usually my focus isn't. You alone are worth. You alone are worthy. Make this your prayer. Make this your first worship offering. Come on. Come on. Come on. Open up and say, you alone are holy. I'm going to ask you to sing that one more time. And I want you to do something with your posture, something physical this morning. Either, either that's standing, either that's as you sit, putting your palms up on your knees, either that's you bowing your head. I want you to add to your words something physical that will remind you of the truth of what you're saying. So as we sing this, do that, do that. Whatever, whatever it is that you can do in this moment, sing this and, and add that. You alone, you alone. Church, hear me say two things. I know you're grateful for our worship ministry. Uh, Would you express your thanks for them this morning? All of them. All of them. 
And I say that, I say that knowing that our team rotates, our band, our vocalists rotate, and um, hopefully you got a slice of how difficult this is for leaders of worship. Uh, we're grateful for all of your ministry. We don't say that enough. Uh, secondly, secondly, Andy, uh, they can't hear me uh, this time. Listen, no, no music. I don't want you to get this wrong. We need help in our sound and tech ministry. Laura Hepka's up here. If you, if you can be reliable and committed, we can equip you and train you. We need people to serve in this ministry to help us do this, as you heard Pastor Peter say. So after I say amen, after that time, come up and talk to her. Glad and grateful that you came for worship this morning. Um, New community, as you leave, leave knowing that somewhere in your week you will always respond to God. Somewhere in your week you will always give your time, your allegiance, your affection, your worship to God question for you is how you will do it. So you leave here knowing that God is worthy of your best praise, of your highest praise, of the best you can give him. Not just on Sunday when we gather, but every day of the week. So you leave knowing that you are a worshiper empowered by God to exalt God in however way you can. So all week long, do something to praise, to express, and to love your God. Go forth in Jesus' name. Have a great week. Amen.